what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. Pebcac is what we call that. Problem yeah. exists between keyboard and oh. computer. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It drives me nuts. Like, oh, the printer's not working again, huh? Well, how'd you fix it? Well, I rebooted it. Just like always. I mean, it literally is like, it's the never-ending conversation, right? <laughs> I do. I lose my mind. Every once in a while, there's a legitimate one, but 99% of the time, I reboot it. And they're like, yeah, I should have done that. I'm like, yeah, for the 50th time this year. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're rolling. Welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thanks again for listening. I'm sitting here with uh, my friend and fellow entrepreneur in the uh, outdoor world, Josh Sprague, founder of Orange Mud. Josh, thanks for making the time. It's great to finally get this done before you head to before Boston. I, before <laughs> I disappear from Castle Rock to Round Rock. Yeah, great. A little bit of rock. Cool. I wanted to ask first, um, how did you ever meet Nate Elson? Because he was the guy that connected us when you were moving from California to Colorado. So how did you know Nate? So I knew him from my medical device business. So um, yeah, we just hit it off. Um, I I feel like he's like long lost brother. And it's really sad because I haven't seen Nate since I've been here, which has really been a tragedy for three years. And you know, you have those people you think about almost every single day. And, and like he, he and, and this guy in Kansas, I think about every single day, I'm like, I gotta call Nate. I gotta call Gary. Um, and I have for years and like, well, three, over three years now. Uh, but yeah, I met him in the medical device business. He's a mechanical engineer and designs, um, hearing implants and, uh, some really advanced stuff in, in my business and prior to Orange Mud, or at least at the same time in parallel there while I had my day job, uh, for, uh, aside from Orange Mud, um, was working with him, but, I hardly ever actually worked with him. I actually just like mountain biking with him. So, and hanging out with him. So, so I'd go out there and meet with him all the time. Like, you have any work for me? He's like, nah, I'm like, okay, cool. You ready to go mountain biking? Yeah. And then we go up and ride Hall Ranch and, <laughs> and then drink copious amounts of beers afterwards. So yeah, it, he's a good dude. <laughs> I have never, I've known him 20 years cause I met him at Medtronic. Um, and I gauged that by the age of my son. So probably 21 years yeah. is when I met him at Medtronic. And in all that time, all situations, professionally, socially, I've never seen the guy upset about anything. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. He is not a, he doesn't seem to get his feathers riled very easily. Yeah. Yeah. So Orange Mud, it started out with the the quiver, which yep. is, if I was to describe it in very general terms, it's basically like a shoulder holster for two water bottles, right? Yep. Yeah, we started with the single bottle version. Okay. And uh, yeah, I took a waste pack, some tie-down straps from the back of my truck, a sewing kit, and um, and I just kind of concocted this little beast that holds a 24-ounce water bottle, and it mounts on your upper back. And the nice part of your upper back is it's a really stable area when you're running, and that's what uh, I came up with really to stabilize water bottle, uh, but carry your you know phone, wallet, keys, nutrition and cash credit card for the beer garden afterwards after a race. But I, I really designed it around um, triathlon was the initial focus and some road running. And then it kind of spiraled into the trail running space. And the trail runners are what really evolved our whole product line uh, in the beginning to go into two bottle systems, chest pockets, bladder based systems. And it just took off from there. And then now we're big in both trail, road, uh, as well as cycling. So a little bit of everything. Were you an inventor, 
or just did you have that mind? How did the first iteration come to be? So, yeah, so I've always been a tinkerer per se, but I mean, I grew up a country boy and I think when you grew up in the country, you, you, anytime something breaks, you just have to figure it out. And I grew up 30 miles from town. So if something was broken, you literally had to figure it out sometimes or your car wouldn't take you there. But, um, and I've always, I've just always liked to build things. So, uh, for years I spent adventure racing, which is trail run, mountain bike, kayaking, rock climb, uh, rappelling, all sorts of stuff. And we always had to carry a copious amounts of gear from, a just being able to survive the course safety and whatnot. And a lot of gear sucks. So over the years I've manipulated pretty much every single piece of gear I've ever bought, aside from rock climbing harnesses <laughs> and, um, them I didn't mess with, but, but otherwise all the backpacks I always manipulated and, um, yeah, it just, just kind of came to fruition one day where I was just always frustrated with running packs specifically. And, uh, I thought, you know what, I can make this better. And, uh, my wife is an attorney and works a million hours and I was running a medical device company at the time and I worked a million hours and we had a three month old boy and I was like, man, one of us has to give because these kids are sick something all the time. We can't both work a hundred hours a week. So, so I thought, you know, I'll just build a pack and it'll be a fun hobby. It'd be kind of a side hustle she can do and just manage the shipping and sales and stuff. And, and, uh, I didn't actually think it would ever take off to where we could, you know, both quit our jobs. But, um, yeah, I think it was two years in and she quit her job and, and about four years in, um, that I quit mine three and a half years. I think I quit mine. And then, yeah, it's now we have over 500 SKUs and keeps going. That's great. It's crazy. Well, we were talking about this before we hit record is that <clears throat> when I've been asked by people that are getting something going, it's like your drive and commitment is not based on quitting your job, right? Yep. Because you have to hedge your bets. And um, the, the two-year and the four-year run rate to get to that point, I think, is something that should not be overlooked because- yeah. You can be passionate about it, but you've got to be smart with your responsibilities and, and your your goals and and all that. And just by wrapping the vehicle and doing, you know, pop-ups and investing, you know, ten thousand dollars in this stuff when you've got no exposure, it's like yeah, it's not good business. Sense. No, it's brutal. Yeah, I mean we when we started um, you know, I've always read a lot of business books and whatnot and podcasts and whatnot and and you know, one of the quotes I read years ago is that your day job is your best loan. <laughs> and it really is yeah. because it funded everything. It funded my mistakes. Uh, you know, in the beginning, Facebook, it changes all the time, but you know, from a Facebook advertising strategy, I've spent a lot of money, um, on there. I don't even know how much it's well into six figures. Well, well into six figures, but, but it's something that in the beginning, um, we had a totally different strategy than we do now. And a lot of it I was learning and I didn't even know how to measure the, the efficacy of it in the beginning. So at least not well. And, uh, and even Facebook's reporting on it. You know, if you go back seven years ago when I started this, it was very different than it is now. Now it's pretty freaking tight. But back then it was still very much like you needed to really have good UTM links, make sure you're doing a lot of good tracking and cross-checking with Google Analytics. And, and you know, there was just a lot of bogus data. You had to get your pixel right. There's just a million things that that is it's not as simple as just pay Facebook and you make money. It just doesn't work like that. Um, but, but yeah, so in the beginning there were, there were times where I thought I was doing something right because Facebook was saying, yeah, you made a thousand dollars today. I'm like, okay, well we sold a hundred. So I don't know how that worked because I don't know where the other 900 is. Uh, <laughs> it's not in my account, but 
but again, that's where the day job funded that and, and funded those mistakes. You know, I, we paid for an infomercial. It cost me 10 grand and, and, uh, the guys had a great pitch and I thought we were going to be rich and we weren't. I, I spent 10,000, I made maybe 500 and then they went bankrupt not too long afterwards as the whole network went down, the outdoor network or outdoor channel network, something like that. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, trade shows, you know, you can throw, I mean, as is right now, we probably spend 80,000 a year in trade shows. And when we were starting, it wasn't that different. Maybe it was 40. And, you know, that was a lot of money that wasn't there, but, you know, again, day job funded that, you know, or my investments that I had saved over the years, thanks to day job, uh, had funded that. So, so yeah, I would always tell people, do not quit your day job until you are at least net profit. You at least have a net profit that is positive or, you know, like, okay, we're here, but because I'm only putting 20% effort into this, I, if I give a hundred, I will definitely be profitable, but it needs to be a confidence factor that, in my opinion, should be pretty heavy. You know, I have a family, I have a house, I have a mortgage. We like nice things. You know, it just going for it is uh, kind of a frightening thing to just jump off a cliff and hope for the best. So we definitely didn't do that. But I've never been shy to, you know, being honest. You know, like when the year that I quit my day job, I think it was 2015, December 18th of 2015. Um, that year, our net profit was $24,000. That was our net profit. And it definitely takes us more to live than that, especially at the time we were in California. And that, that was like, you know, it takes half that a month just to live. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. And then that's net profit. That doesn't account for cash flow. And cash flow is another massive portion of business, especially now. Um, but even then, um, you know, just because you had a net profit of 24000 doesn't mean that you might be negative cash flow of 40, 50, 60, 70,000 because of inventory purchases and whatnot. So, um, so yeah, I always tell people your, your day job, you better keep it as long in, until you're just fried and you can't do it and you're failing at both, then, then quit one. And, and, you know, it may not be the day job that you even quit. <laughs> it just depends. <laughs> you need to have a high confidence that, that the other one is going to work because, you know, uh, companies are, they just take a lot of money to make go. Yeah. It's scary. <laughs> Still so, is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you, if you don't like uncertainty, don't start a business. <laughs> no, no, that's for sure. <laughs> so that, that the first two years, uh, what was your, did you have a retail strategy, a wholesale strategy? How did you break that down and the, yep. getting that grassroots going? Cause you're starting from zero. What, what did yeah. you find that was the most effective? So we thought we were going to be really big in retail. And that was a major focus from the beginning because I really didn't know much about online, but I also didn't know much about retail. So they were kind of, it was kind of a weakness I had like everywhere. So uh, on the retail side, we were calling all these stores and, and I really thought it would just be a no brainer that a running store would be like, yeah, this is great. It's a product designed for us. It's totally unique and innovative and different. Um, but a lot of stores were like, mm, no, that's stupid. Water bottles go on your chest. Why would you put them on your back? And I was like, I don't know, because that's where weight goes. I'm like, yeah, there's packs with water bottles on your chest on the market, but that that's illogical. Do you, when you go backpacking, do you wear a backpack on your chest? You know, you don't. So why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. Like we did what's logical. And I realized that innovation is not always a win. You know, there's a lot of times it's a penalty and ed innovation means you better educate a lot. And that was one thing we struggle with is, okay, we have this innovative, cool product and, and people that buy it love it, but it takes a lot to get people 
to tell people about it. You know, that you need you need people to to really spread the word grassroots. So so we initially made this big push at the retail side, but we quickly backed off and started focusing on the direct to consumer because we saw how happy people were when they used it. And and it wasn't just that they were happy. The cool part about it is because because it is so weird the way our pack works. Uh, you know, you have a strap that goes through your armpit, like literally right through your armpit, and and that just counter it's counterintuitive. You would think it would rub and chaff you, right? So, and I always tell people, I totally get your impression. If you try it on at a race, someone today will try it on, and they'll be like, mm, "Yeah, this is definitely going to rub me." I'm like, "Well, it's not," and there's here's the reasons. But but I I've heard it so many times. I'm used to it, and it's it's at a it's a valid expectation. Um, but what we found is that because people were not having a negative experience and to the flip side, they're really enjoying running with our packs. They were, um, I think more prone to go and leave reviews on our site and then more prone to jump on the orange mud bandwagon and say, this product is awesome because they didn't expect it to work. So we have a money back guarantee on everything. And that's, that's been big to get a lot of people started, uh, because otherwise people, you know, when they see it, they're just like, I don't know, it's just not going to work. So, uh, so yeah, so we, we've been fortunate because we did something different, it made people be more passionate about supporting our brand. Um, but again, from retail side, that was a hard go. And then what really put us on the map, though, was our transition seat wrap, the changing tile and seat cover that we designed. Um, so we launched in in uh, October of 2012 with our hide quiver. It was four months later in February of 2013 that I rolled out the transition wrap. And which I always have in my car. Yeah. And that but one is essential. That was key. One, yeah. yeah I so I bought it at that same time. Yeah. So with that, um, that's what really gave us a different approach. Again, the, the, the business pivoted. I didn't expect that product to happen. It came about after mountain biking one day and, you know, being standing there naked in a parking lot and seeing a young girl like three, 400 yards away looking at me and thinking, Jesus, I'm going to go to jail. I've got to fix this problem. <laughs> so, um, uh, fortunately nothing happened, but, but long story short, you know, when I came out with that product, um, uh, I pitched it to retail and at the time they were like, well, that's stupid. It's $40. That's too much money. I'm like, well, not really. I mean, it's high quality towel with a belt and a clip and a zipper and all this stuff. There's a reason why it costs. And, and, um, uh, and we, you know, first got our first store in March and then started just picking up from there, uh, kind of slow and steady. And then Runner's World announced this as gear, uh, gear of the year that year in December issue and the gift issue of all things. Thank you, Runner's World forever. I will be grateful. Um, but we landed a hundred stores within a week, just thanks to that article. And then, and the retail consumer shipments, I remember we were sitting there, uh, it went to press at the very end of November, right before Thanksgiving. And we were sitting at this table in my house in California with my in-laws and uh, at breakfast. And my phone starts going ding, 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 ding. Like all these orders came flying in from consumers. It was awesome. And we were like, <laughs> what in the world is happening? Because that didn't happen back then. That was like an order a day would be a win back then. Right. And And here we'd had like over the course of, 45 seconds, we had like 30 orders come in. It was just, my phone was beeping nonstop. It was just really cool. And, and that's really what put us on the map though, as a business. And, and all of a sudden I'm like, okay, cool. We have a viable product for a B2B, you know, running retail store space, cycling retail store space, um, that is going to help to get our traction. But yet my passion is still in packs. So it helped to fund pack development and continuation of that product and, and get things going. So, so it really has always been a two pronged approach where, you know, we, we love our direct to consumer. We don't ignore what the obvious leaning of the market is, but at the same time, we love specialty retail. So we focus on specialty retail stores and, and, uh, we just keep, 
a pricing strategy that makes both sides happy. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think we've got a, a 50-50 split in focus, but, you know, by revenue, it's still, you know, 70% online. So it's it's just, that's just the, the way the industry is going. The thing I love about the wrap, <clears throat> and this is, this is going to be a compliment eventually, right, is that it's something you don't need. Mm-hmm. And I could see that, you know, especially cheap male cyclists, like, oh, I'm just going to, take a towel and like a big binder clip, right? Yep. Essentially the same thing, but the little details of that wrap make it way more effective. And it's something that is been a small but powerful transformation in when I go for a ride or go mm-hmm. for a run, because I can just stuff that stuff in my backpack the night before, toss it in the car. I can go right to the trailhead and I can change right there. I'm not having to find a bathroom or where, bib shorts under my jeans for an hour in the car. Yeah. And it's such a small improvement, but that has a massive impact on the overall experience. And I'm not just kissing your ass because I, sure. I use this yeah. thing all the time. Right. Yeah. But it makes things a lot more efficient from my perspective. I, I rode at Hidden Mesa three nights ago and just like put on the wrap shorts, come off, drive yeah. home and then i'm not like in sweaties you know especially with a cycling pad mm-hmm. it's just gone and then i can bring the backpack in and it's just you know and it's one of those yeah. things where the education of like yeah you don't need it but once you try it and you try it this way it's like oh that's way better yeah yeah and the seat cover is you know we find like runners use the seat cover way more than they do the changing like runners don't change as much right but yeah i mean you get out of your cycling bibs like those things are just disgusting and and so <laughs> you should as soon as you finish a run or a ride you should take your bibs off and then and even so you're probably still going to be sweating a bit especially in the summer when you get you know if your blood's still pumping when you get in the car you know maybe you put on just shorts and a t-shirt but or leave your jersey on but then you put you zip up the hoodie and put it over the headrest on the car and and, uh, you know, and it's a great sweat barrier. It's not waterproof, but it's a great sweat barrier. And, and, you know, we found that, you know, so many people, you know, like you said, they, they buy it, they're like, well, it's neat, but it's kind of expensive. But then all of a sudden they realize like, this is something that they use every day, you know, yeah. all the time. And then usually over the holidays, we see a lot of, that's where the, the returning customers come in so much. Cause we see like, you know, people buy three of them to fit the rest of the seats in their car. You know, it's not just you. Sometimes it's your sweaty friends. I have stinky friends and I don't want them sitting on my seats. <laughs> you know, or I have nasty kids. You know, they, they, it's fascinating. I, I clean my car and, and there's sticky stuff on the seats, like within two minutes of them getting in the car. You know, it's amazing how they're never hungry until they get in the car. And it's just, oh, I want to strangle them. But I put them underneath their car seats and it keeps that at least clean. So, so there's a lot of benefits aside from that. And then even, you know, in a pinch, you know, after a race, every once in a while there's a shower or something there. And man, it's like, oh, I wish I had a towel. And you're like, oh yeah, I do. I have the transition wrap in the car. So it still works as a towel. <laughs> so it's, it's a win. <laughs> How did that runner's world uh, gift guide come to be? Because I'm guessing yeah. you're still pretty new in the business. And how yeah. did you navigate to get the product in that gift guide? So I, it was dumb luck. The uh, I was at Outdoor Retailer in um, Salt Lake, which is a big industry trade show. And, um, Were you exhibiting there? Yeah, I was exhibiting okay. there, um, which is no, in no means by no means relevant in this case uh, because the editor um, didn't come by there. He didn't know of us. He, after the trade show, uh, went to Salt Lake Running Company and saw it, bought it, and then emailed me like a week or two later saying, hey, you know, 
I uh, I picked up this product, Salt Lake Running Company. I think it's just the neatest thing I've ever seen. Uh, would you mind if I featured you? And mind you, this is in, um, I think it was June or July when they used to have it in, in Salt Lake. And, uh, and he's like, would you mind if we featured you as Runner's World Gear of the Year in the December issue? And I was like, okay. I was waiting <laughs> for like the pitch. I'm like, and it's going to be $20,000. And... Um, which we didn't have. And, and I was like, yeah, sure, man, that'd be, that'd be great. And he's like, cool. Well, legal will follow up in about a month or so just to make sure we have everything right. And, uh, and then, yeah, we'll go live in the end of November. And I was like, great, cool. And I hung up. I'm like, wait. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and then it actually happened, which was amazing. So, so yeah, it's, it's those kind of small dumb luck. Like that was the best luck we've ever had. <laughs> it was, yeah. it didn't cost me anything. As a matter of fact, he bought it. So, um, you know, I won and he won and my customer Salt Lake Running Company won. It was, it was a win for everybody. And then, yeah, it was massive for us. So, um, yeah, dumb luck. I didn't do anything other than sell it to a store and he bought it. It's those things that drive your marketing strategy nuts because yeah. it's completely random, completely yeah. outside your control and it's luck and timing and yep. like, yeah, you couldn't have scripted that any better. No, it's freaking awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I love Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Love you. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the questions I always ask um, in, in the business context when I'm talking to owners, <clears throat> in those first couple of years, how close did you ever get to quitting? Was the frustration building like, or was it like this, I'm going to win or die here? Yeah. What was your process on that? Well, I mean, it was, it was never really, there was never a thought of quitting then because again, I had my day job. So uh, it was always that it was, it was something that when my wife quit her job two years in, it was, it was something that made sense that, you know, she could continue it, but I didn't know if honestly we'd ever make enough for me to quit. Honestly, I didn't think we would. I, I just, you just do the math. You're like, okay, well we made this much last year and we sold this many backpacks. I'm like, we need to sell or oh, whatever it is, 10,000 hydro quivers. And I'm like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Like I, I couldn't wrap my head around that. And, um, um, not at least at the scale that we knew at the time. And, uh, so yeah, I, I really just couldn't like in doing the projections, I couldn't see how I could do it, but where I had a plan was probably a year in, I would say, uh, I don't remember specifically, but right about then I told my wife that I, I thought I could quit my day job if we hit 10 products on the market. And cause you just kind of do the math per product and, and it made a little more sense piecemealing it out that way. And I also wanted to have a diverse product portfolio, you know, is because of the world copying everything anymore. Um, so easily I, I was worried, even though we have patents on, you know, filed and, and granted now it's something still, it doesn't matter. I mean, just because somebody, just because you have a patent doesn't mean somebody can't copy you. You just have to have enough money to sue them. And that's a whole nother story. And then they need to generate enough revenue to make it make sense for you to sue them. So there's kind of a few aspects. So, you know, back then it was a thought of, I wanted to have 10 products that diversified our portfolio between more than just, you know, the two packs I had at the time and the transition wrap. And um, uh, they would cross me into cycling and also cross me into lifestyle category uh, to where if we lost an element that it would be, I could make it up with a different. So um, I actually didn't quit my day job until I had 14 products on the market. And, and, uh, so that was the whole focus back then. And, and, and that was when I, the year I quit and we had a net profit of 24, 28,000, whatever it was. And, uh, uh, so yeah, so it wasn't necessarily ever, I don't think I've ever had that, that thought of, 
you know, I'm about to throw in the towel. It was more of, I just don't know if it'll ever get there. Uh, but again, once we had the, the 14 products, that was when, um, everything started looking up and, you know, I think if anything, the flip side is that, you know, it's still to this day, it's like, God, I wish we had some investors or it would be nice to sell it to where all I had to do is design because the cash management as you got, as we're bigger is almost harder than it was then. Hmm. Cause then I could just write a check for 10 grand, 20 grand, whatever it is. But now it's like we wire off a hundred grand a freaking month for inventory coming over. And, you know, it's just a whole different scenario, you know, and revenue of course is bigger, but, but when you're wiring these big money, it's, it never becomes small. It never becomes easy. You know, it's a laugh every time. I'm like, Oh, all right, sweetie, I got to go to the bank, wire off another 70 today. I mean, it's, it's just, it blows your mind. And that's, it's, it's just a bigger, bigger cash movement. So if, if anything, that's where things get scary because, again, you can make mistakes when you're only doing 10 grand and whatnot, you know, but uh, of these tra- type of transactions. But when these transactions get bigger, a mistake is far, far greater. And, and like this year, we had a wire fraud that was, it was, it was pretty sharp. It was pretty fascinating that we almost lost uh, $69,536 78 cents if I remember right. And, um, cause I do. And cause I was ready to kill somebody in Thailand. And it was, it was the best wire fraud I've ever seen. Uh, they duplicated my, my factories, all their emails. And I mean, it, they knew we had a shipment coming in on Tuesday at noon. They, they had full access. They hacked my factory. And I, I, I just, I still, to this day, you know, it, I, I mean, I, I had respect for the guy that hacked me because you know what? He won. <laughs> I fortunately got my money back. Uh, no thanks to Wells Fargo, but good thanks to my wife and I for calling a Thailand bank and freezing an international bank account, which is still pretty funny that we were able to do that. And Wells Fargo <laughs> sucked at this, but, um, uh, but those are the type of things that like, if we lost that money, that would have been extremely painful. I, like, I, I don't know how that would have played out. You know, it would have been pretty freaking brutal. So it takes a lot. You got to sell a lot of backpacks to to repay $70,000 of just a straight loss. So, so yeah, I would say as you get, as you scale down the road, that's honestly where it's almost gets harder rather than easier. You would, you would think it would, but, um, yeah, it's crazy. Did you have the infrastructure in place or were you building that all along that would handle the 10 products, the 14 products, the 500 products? Were you building that as the plane was in flight? Were you preparing? Yeah, no, it was definitely building in flight. And in the beginning, no, we definitely did not have the infrastructure for it. My, the factory I used, I used two different factories in Southern California as my primaries. And uh, so we produced everything in the U.S. in the beginning. And that was the whole mantra that I had going forward as U.S. made as long as we could. And, and it was a great way to start. Um, I have thrown away. Oh, I hate to call it thrown away. I've invested in the United States economy a good three, four, five hundred thousand dollars more than I than I probably needed to. But you know, I guess if you look at it, it was a good thing I put it into the economy. But um, but that that money early on, if I'd have gone overseas, knowing if I could do it over, I would have gone to seas earlier, overseas earlier. Um, I mean, I know everybody wants to have things made in America, but the thing is, there's there's certain products that just don't fit that mold. This is one of them. And consumers don't want to pay $400 for a backpack. So, um, you know, if, if you, if, if you're the person, if, if there's like 5,000 people listening right now that will all pay $400 for a backpack, 
hit me up. I'll build you a USA made backpack. No problem. But, but the amount of margin that we left on the table, it impacted, I had no international business strategy. My wholesale strategy was basically a, a, a trading dollars. I was not, there was barely any profit if there even was, um, because there wasn't any margin left in it. Hence why people go overseas. It's, it's this, it's just this weird game that we play in, in the retail market of, you know, you, you have to have a good margin built in because the amount of expenses on the back end are mind numbing. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy, crazy the amount of money we, we bring in and yet we pay out. <laughs> it, it just still blows my mind. Um, but, but it's something that, um, uh, our U S guys, again, they were great for helping me because I did not know what I was doing. And, um, and they, they, were a tremendous resource. But that being said, the scalability was not there. Like if I needed to order 500,000 transition wraps right now, it's no big deal. Just call my factory. Hey, need 500,000 transition wraps. No problem. In the US, man, even a thousand piece order could be six months sometimes where that isn't even like, they won't even take orders that small overseas. So, you know, you have to have the finances to be able to fund the stuff overseas, sure. but yet your margins are a lot better. So you end up buying, you know, for the same investment you've been making in the U.S., you often would have been getting four times the product from overseas. So love it or hate it, it's just kind of the nature of the beast. And and what I also found by going overseas, um, which we did three years ago, about three years ago now, where we took almost everything overseas, uh, because we'd had an 87% increase in cost of goods over the previous three years, um, is you know our, our quality actually went up, which was a big shocker, given that we were using some really high-performance people, like some number one military manufacturers here in the States, but they didn't have the finesse to make consumer goods. It, it wasn't their skill set. Their skill set was a heavier grade type of product, heavier weight materials that we don't use in the sporting goods space. So they, their machines and their their talent pool, they just weren't used to doing that as much. So it was a little bit of a, of a more of a trouble for them. I was probably more a thorn in their side rather than a you know some great customer that they really enjoyed because we're making such tiny little features and you know lightweight materials. So whereas overseas, that's what they're used to because that's what the market does. So so there's been a lot of them type of weird learning curves that I've had. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's nice now because we were at a point that we could scale for almost anything. Our factory is amazing and like it's, it, it would cause me no grief. You know, if some, some massive order came in, it, it would just be a piece of cake where that definitely was not the case back then. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it was, yeah, everything was different. <laughs> so what impact did it have on your margins? It, not disclosing Huge. company secrets, but are we talking 40%? Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's hard to ignore. Right? Yeah, it was it was a big deal. I mean, it's it, it it made me sick when I first got pricing from overseas, and I did the math, and and I'd have to go back and look. I think it was that one year we would have made an additional two hundred sixty thousand dollars, and so I was actually kind of fascinated that we were even able to survive. And I'm actually fascinated that we're not rich right now, given that we have done this. You would think that'd be the case, but it's not. <laughs> Like I said, it's like, I don't know where all this money goes. I keep looking at like the hidden, I keep thinking, is there a hidden account in my in my finance software somewhere that I'm missing? Uh, yeah, but it's, um, you know, it, it's it's something that, that extra profitability on our side has allowed us to scale a lot. And, you know, we invest more, we invest back in the community a lot. And, you know, almost probably to a fault. I'm not, some of it's hard to measure, you know, with all the events. I sponsor hundreds of events and, um I love the small events. I don't necessarily focus on big ones near as much, but um, but I definitely 
probably don't get an ROI on a lot of them, <laughs> but, but it's fun because I enjoy them and, and I don't want to ever forget where we came from. You know, the small, small events and run and bike are what got us our start and got us jamming. Hence why I always want to pay it forward. But that being said, I do think there's a lot of profit goes out the window and some of that, but, um, but you know, it's some of that marketing stuff is hard to measure, unfortunately, but, um, yeah, it's crazy, crazy to see how much that's, that part has changed over time. Yeah. <clears throat> and I, I can personally attest to that sponsorship going out the window from my days in the bike industry. And, Brutal. and I can tell that, um, at least on the warm front, I've kind of reached a tipping point because through Instagram and email, like it's not very frequent, but I get hit up for those sponsorship proposals. I'm like, yeah. oh, I'm kind of on a little map here. Yeah. But, but in terms of the giving back, I can personally attest to that because you've always been so gracious. You've always been so willing with your time. I mean, not even just today, like you've, there's still photos on my website that you've taken here at your house and you've always, you know, responded with answers to questions. And, yeah. um, that's why, especially seeing your success, it's like well-deserved because you're such a good dude. No, thanks, man. And I, I <laughs> sincerely appreciate like any advice you've given. Cause in some ways, like I look at what you're doing, like, we're going to be doing that too. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I hope you do. <laughs> hope you do, man. Like but so. it's been inspirational, you yeah. know, because I've seen, because I met you, I think that first time you moved out here yep. and then I watched the uh, inventory go from your basement to warehouses and like it can happen and it's really cool. And then I yeah. think about those times when, you know, again, nobody cares. There's no traffic. There's no orders. But then all of a sudden it's like, you know, it's just, you've added fuel to my tank. So oh, sure. I, I thank you to that yeah. sincerely because you've just been an incredible friend and business resource too. No, no worries, man. No, it's, it has, it's been, it's been a neat growth. And I, I still look at, you know, my, uh, like my father-in-law, well, like we were talking about the retailer a minute ago when, um, the year that runner's world found us, um, well in town anyway, my father-in-law and I were in, in the hotel at night after outdoor retailer, which he used to go and help me at a lot of these trade shows. And, and, uh, and he's not a runner or a cyclist. He's, He's an old dude that plays golf and he's like, Hey, he was really always fun at the trade shows. Cause he's like, look, he's like, if you think you have a hard time reaching this bottle on your back, I'm old and I've had spinal fusion and I play golf and then I can still do it. You know, he's always fun, <laughs> but, but he's, he's been an exciting one to have, um, is, is part of our crew as we grew. And, and I still remember on a, you know, in Shopify, you have a, uh, one day, seven day, 30 day, 90 day roll, um, in the Shopify app, which is yep. what we use as a website. And, and I remember laying there in bed and, and, uh, one night after the show and, and, uh, I looked over at Poppy, he's in the next bed, but, uh, but I looked over at Poppy, I was like, Hey Poppy, we just hit $10,000 in revenue, uh, on a 90 day roll. And that was, that was a big thing back then. You know, it was again, 2013 or something. And, and, and that was like, just to think like, I mean, granted it was still exciting and I'm still, and I'll, I'll never forget that how, how, we were celebrating doing $10,000 in the, over the course of 90 days. And I remember Poppy saying, yeah, yeah, we got this, man. You're going to make this a viable business. I'm like, I know, I don't know how though, because that's not very much money actually, but, but, um, but it, it's neat to see, uh, how it's scaled. And then, and then like, you know, I, I've always told anybody, um, you know, like just don't, don't not only 
don't quit your day job until you really are confident. But, but like we've ran it out of our, our basement, you know, for or in California, it was out of our garage and the game room and an office. And, and then in Colorado, uh, it's been an 1800 square foot basement and three external warehouses and leveraging Amazon warehouses and leveraging, you know, external people to help and, and whatnot. And, and it's been a great way to scale. And then now our move to, uh, Round Rock, Texas, this, this is our first, you know, building that we're building out for us. And, and that's, I mean, for me, it's really special here. Seven years in, we finally have our first warehouse. And because I, I do feel somewhat illegitimate, given that we're running it out of our basement, but, but, uh, I think there's, there's probably more, more successful brands out there than, you know, they're in the same boat. And, um, and we were a seven figure brand now. I mean, it's not that we're, you know, itty bitty little company doing it. And, um, but it's, it's really exciting for me, you know, with this go live in, in Round Rock, Texas come June 1st to move into our first 3,300 square foot building that's being custom built for us and, you know, full orange paint all around and nice. the black logo up and clear coat floors. And it's going to be really cool. <laughs> and I have my own photography set up in their studio for all of our product stuff and, and our sewing area for all the making the prototypes. So it's, uh, it's going to be exciting, but, but I, I think that, you know, it's, it's often not understood or it's often, uh, I think people just think you have to have a building, you have to have, you know, receptionists and the front office desk and the conference rooms and all those things where we don't have that. You know, we, we all use stand-up desk, even in the warehouse. When I was looking for warehouse space, they're like, well, this only has 300 square foot of office space. I'm like, oh, that's fine. We all use stand-up desk. We'll all work in the warehouse, <laughs> but we want the warehouse, warehouse, warehouse air conditioned. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, like our, our warehouse, we had a, a custom done, um, just to make sure the whole thing's air conditioned because we all will work in the warehouse, like the office space. I don't know it's for the kitchen and stuff, but, but, um, but it's, it's really neat to see, you know, I do feel like an outsider looking into my own business oftentimes because I do feel like I'm just kind of riding on the coattails of orange mud and seeing how it goes as time goes on. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely exciting to see. Well, and you've got your priorities in the right place, right? Because if the building was the most important thing to your mantra of, or your measure of success. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you get that building before you could afford it and yeah. it would have a, a big impact. Sure. And the only goal of a company is I think two things, take care of your customers and be open one more day. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately that's <laughs> all it is. I mean, I'm really yeah. over, oversimplifying it, Yeah, but that is really it. Yeah. Now having a fleet of vehicles and the, the warehouse and all that, if that comes great, but yeah. who cares that you're running it out of your business? Sure. Right? Or your basement. Yeah. No, and I'm with you. I mean, this is, I mean, just to put it in perspective, just to give, you know, listeners an idea, I mean, a, a 3,300 square foot space all ends about 4,000 bucks a month. And, oh, well, shoot, when you factor insurance and whatnot, you're probably talking five. But but it, it really adds up and, you know, it's 60 grand a year that you're going to be throwing away. But on our side, we already have three external warehouses anyway. So it's only going to cost us an extra couple grand a month in all reality. Right. And, and then the efficiencies we're going to gain from that are, we hope to easily make that up. So, um, but it's something that I think, yeah, so many people early on, they want to get, you know, the sprinter van and wrap the car and do all this stuff. And, and, you know, at points in our business, I've thought like, man, we got all this extra cash. We're going to be great. But the next thing you know, the bank account's almost zero because we have to pay for, <laughs> you know, massive amounts of inventory. And, you know, it's, it, it really is, it's, it's a crazy thing. And, 
I think the number one thing that we've done right uh, is that we've always been extremely conservative with our business. We don't we don't waste money anywhere. I mean, we're not like a lot of people are. They just you know, if you own a business, you feel like you can write off everything to it. It's kind of the mantra some people seem to have, and we definitely don't do that. Almost to a fault. Well, probably to a fault. Um, but to the flip side, our books are 100 percent clean, <laughs> and it's good. <laughs> so, um, but it's um, yeah, it's it's crazy how much money you can throw away in the wrong areas um, in, in getting a business going. And like one of the best books, I'm sure you've read it, is, is Traction. Have you ever read yeah, that? Yeah, um, you recommended it. Uh, I love that. You about yeah, it. I love that. And and for me, I wish I had listened to that when I first started my business because I wouldn't hopefully have wasted certain money in areas that I just threw away money in the beginning. And, um, and some of them that it talks about, the same thing. Don't waste the money on fancy cars and all this stuff and wrapping your cars and just all this extra marketing money that can be a waste, you know, get your product viable, make sure it's good, um, get people to want it. And then, then you can start doing some of the more top level stuff later. Yeah. I've always put the money back in the product, making yeah. that the best it could. And I was having lunch with my friend Helen uh, a couple months ago and she was looking at my Instagram feed. She's like, you go to like the coolest places. Yeah. And I told her, I'm like, those are stock photos. Yeah. <laughs> Those are all from Unsplash, right? Yeah. Because here's the thing. I could hire a drone and a photographer go out and take these shots. Yeah. And it's going to, you know, the product may or may not be in there. Yeah. But it's like, here's these photos. And I said, those are all stock photos. Yeah. And it was like a three second pause. And she just kind of went, what? And yeah. I, no, I don't, I don't own a Niner gravel bike and I don't know, even know where that forest is. That's right. Me. Yeah. I <laughs> wasn't know? biking in the Sahara on a sand dune. Yeah. yeah. So like the only photos I publish are like those, you know, real cool high def landscape photos that are free stock photos Yeah. or the ones my customers send me. And other than that, like I don't, you know, it doesn't need to be anything else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's where, well, that's where on our side, we are very fortunate to have huge, um, customer base that, that tags us a lot in social. They're so we're passionate. able to, yeah, yeah we have a crazy, love you. crazy crew. And, um, and so we do, we share a lot of that out, but, but yeah, we do use high risk, you know, Adobe stock photos and, and Photoshop them every once in a while. And, and, uh, and it makes it, you know, like we just did one in our email newsletter the other day where I photoshopped hide quivers on the back of like 30 runners and sent it. It was just, it was, it was purposely done to be a spoof, <laughs> but, but it looked cool, you know? And, and yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think, um, you know, earlier on, I definitely spent, I spent some money that worked well, fortunately, but it was honestly dumb luck. Some of it did. Some of the money I spent in video development um, and content creation in the beginning, I could have done myself and, um, and maybe it wouldn't have been quite as good, but it would have been for the money I spent in some of it, I could have bought a $3,000 camera set up and taken a Photoshop class and um, it would have paid for itself to do that. And there are definitely some granular things you can do like that. Or to the flip side, you can just use a freaking iPhone anymore. I mean, the camera quality is pretty remarkable on these or a GoPro. And, and that's about all you need for a lot of social when it's being downsized to 300 pixels square. Uh, it just doesn't hardly matter on a small screen, but, but, you know, I, I think that's another one that a lot of people throw away a lot of money at is you feel like you've got to do all this professional grade stuff and, you know, leverage schools and, and, um, you know, you can help them by giving them a project. It may take longer to get, but you're probably going to get it at a lot better rates, uh, that, you know, for them to do photography and videography, uh, projects and, and, uh, even writing up product descriptions, things like that. There's a lot you can do on that side. So, 
and and we've done all that with leveraging you know schools to help out too so yeah there's money that can be spent everywhere but you just got to spend it wisely i had to separate myself from the perfection yeah and say is this 80 20 is this 90 percent? and then what's the 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 cash going to take to get it to what's the image in my head yeah because you're right. Once it goes on an iPhone, it, when people are consuming it via Instagram, the resolution it's tiny. It's like, you know, is that worth a thousand dollars for that photo right. when free or thirty bucks or like your own iPhone photo? And that that was a, a major shifting point for me. It was like, it doesn't have to be perfect. Yep. Yeah, and and I mean, if if you're decent with Photoshop, or even if you're not, you get a decent photo, just a decent photo, as long as it's high res. Send it to somebody on Fiverr for five, ten bucks. Fiverr. You can get some amazing stuff done, and and they'll tweak it and make it perfect, and they'll overlay it on a beach or whatever. Or you do put it in the Sahara somewhere on a camel. I mean, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> uh, so it's it's I've spent thousands of dollars on Fiverr, and not everything on Fiverr is five bucks. <laughs> I've I've made guys that you know literally thousand dollars to do some higher level stuff, but but man, some of the stuff you can just contract out, it's so cheap and. And it would blow your mind. You can take a picture of something on your kitchen table that has messy papers and food in the background. And if you're decent in Photoshop or again, pay somebody on Fiverr, they can they can make it a work of art. And then you're good to use it on a million things. So uh, it's yeah, the, the the content side, it really is big. You know, I know when we launched, one of the things that I launched poorly is that my product photography did suck back then, and. Um, and it's honestly, it's evolved all the time. And, but back then it was pretty crappy and we had a low, um, uh, conversion rate it, or just our content was bad. I just felt like everybody could see inside my head, which is a really scary place to be anyway. But, <laughs> but it, it's something that, that once I finally had some high quality videos done, we finally started putting up good content. It was an instant change. I mean, instant, but a high quality picture, it truly, a picture is worth a thousand words. It really is. I mean, that saying says it all. Uh, once we put out that high quality content, change the look of our website. I mean, every time we make an improvement on our website quality or picture quality, we notice a, a significant increase in conversions. So uh, I can't stress enough how important content is in today's world because we're everybody's used to high end stuff. So if you look at, you know, if you're used to looking through Instagram, seeing all these beautiful accounts, and you go to some dodgy website that's selling your know, product, it doesn't matter how awesome it is. If it looks like crap, that's what consumers' vision is going to be. So it's definitely been something we've invested heavy in over time. And, you know, I've got an awesome camera set up now. I'm friggin' awesome in Photoshop, and, and, and I love it. <laughs> Actually, it's really <laughs> fun to be a part of. But at the same time, I still pay people. I have a photo shoot going on right now in Arizona, and, um, and it's 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 worth it sometimes to contract things out. What's your camera setup? What do you have going? I have a Sony A7 III, and I've got a bunch of different lenses for it. Um, I generally shoot with a 35 2.8, uh, but I have a 50 1.8 that I like a lot for a lot of product shots. And then my real love is my 70 to 200 thing is awesome. It's the L series. It's just incredible glass, uh, the 2.8 and. Uh, but for product shots, it's a little overkill because it's, well, it's a 70 millimeter lens at the minimum. So you got to get back a ways, but the bulk on it's freaking stupid. Yeah. But, but the 50 millimeter, uh, man, it's cheap actually. You know, the Sony a7 is full frames, 2,200 bucks, I think. And then, um, the, well, to not even get crazy, the, the kit lens, the 24 to 70 that came with it. When I first got it, I bought you know, three lenses to start plus the kit. 
the kit I compared against the other ones. And honestly, on a product shot, you're shooting at like F11, F8 anyway uh, to get a better depth. And you, it takes a special eye to see the difference between those lenses. The kit lens on it's awesome. So if you want a good camera setup, man, that new Sony is, I can't say enough good things about it. For I think it was 20, maybe 24 with the kit lens. Um, I, I have no, I hardly ever use the kit lens stupidly just because I'm a nerd and, and you maybe get a skosh more out of the 50, but man, it's, it really pays for itself. And again, Photoshop, just go on YouTube. It's intimidating. It's a pain in the butt. It's a very confusing program, but if you just take it piece by piece, how to delete a background, search that on YouTube, watch it, try it. Uh, there's like 20 million different ways to do it in Photoshop, but, but, you know, start with that and then adjust, um, you know, when you shoot in raw, use the raw editor, you can tweak things around and man, you can make your photos good. So what I thought was amazing four years ago, um, and I had a Canon at the time with a Sigma art lens. It was amazing. And, uh, uh, and I improved my quality with that. And then when I switched from that to my Sony, now my quality stepped up even more. Mm -hmm. And that extra quality from the Sony is so noticeable when you're in Photoshop cleaning edges of a product to delete a background. It, it, it just cut my time. Like it's just staggering how much it's cut my time down. Not to mention it's amazing for my kids' soccer games. Like the 70 to 200, 2.8, that thing is full pro quality at kids' soccer games. Like it, you see my boy, like, snots flying through the air the grass is perfect i mean bokeh is amazing it's 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 been really cool for those subtle things too but but uh but yeah man a good camera equipment in today's product world can give you such an edge and then even like a gopro honestly gopros are fantastic you get wide angle real rich quality for any web or pictures that's still a great setup or again an iphone you get a good iphone um, if you're just starting out, it's, it's still a great way to go. It's a little harder to get all the lighting and everything perfect, but, um, but I mean, man, it's, it's shooting pretty high quality stuff too. So you don't always have to break the bank. Just get you a good phone. You can do almost the world with it. Yep. So you use GoPro for still shots. Yeah. Still and videos okay. I, more for still than anything, but it's usually like, like during racing and gotcha. you know, I, there's so many times where I have the little itty bitty GoPro session. I just throw it like I'm doing a 120 mile gravel bike race this weekend. Uh, it's flooding. There's actually flood warnings. It's rivers are far above flood stage currently in Kansas. So I am dreading the weekend's race. However, um, 120 miles in the mud should generate some really cool photos. And, <laughs> and, uh, we do really well in the gravel bike space with our endurance pack. And, and, um, so I'm sure there'll be plenty of people on course with it. So I take the GoPro and I snap pictures along the way. And, and, uh, it's just a little more convenient to use. And again, the angles are always so neat. You can always crop down. Uh, but I, I've, I've made it a habit over the years racing that every time I see somebody is wearing one of my packs, you know, I always ask them, Hey, what do you think about it? How do you, how do you like it? And, and in Leadville last year, in Leadville 100 Trail Run, um, I took, I don't even know how many pictures, of all kinds of people. Every time I got next to somebody who was running with one of my packs, I, I never told them who I was at first. I just asked them, hey, what do you think of that pack? Because uh, I always wanted the honest feedback first. Sure. And, and it was always so cool. I've never had anybody be like, this thing sucks. Everybody always is like, I love this thing. It's amazing. I'm like, sweet. I designed it. And then, it, you know, I, I ran with one guy and for 15 miles, uh, probably in, in Leadville 100. We ran all the way up over Hope Pass and back. And and uh, so it's been really cool to, to you know, use photography as just a nice way to share out, hey, I appreciate what you're doing for me. I'm buying my packs. And like um, I was running up uh, Pikes Peak last uh, last fall, last summer. 
and um, about 12,000 feet in elevation, I ran into a lady with my endurance pack on and, and, uh, and same thing. I talked with her. I'm like, hey, do you mind if I take a picture? And I did. And I posted it on ins- our Instagram account. And, and so it was really cool just to, to do stuff like that. And, and again, it's just easier to use a GoPro for that type, especially when you're up real close and you're literally holding it in your hand. You can get a little better picture than you can on an iPhone. But, and again, the quality's there. GoPros are, they're pretty dang good. Yeah, they are. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. cool, man. What's the race you're doing uh, this weekend? It's called Maisie's. It's okay. a, a gravel ride for Maisie's Pride. So it's really, this one's really actually special to me because it goes past my dad's house. So I'm taking my boy um, out of school for this one. He, he's going to go back. This is the second year that I'm doing it and uh, third year sponsoring it. Well, this lady, uh, Maisie DeVore, she um, forever, I don't even like literally forever, like 30, 40 years collected beer cans and bottles on the side of the road in this little town called Eskridge. And she just walk along. And I remember her as a kid walking along and, and or seeing her walk along the side of the roads, picking up cans. And I thought like, what is it with this lady? Well, she was collecting cans and bottles all this time that she would in turn sell um, or, you know, whatever, get the, the contribution back. And then she wanted to build a community pool because this town has literally like 100 or 200 people. It's very small, but she wanted the town to have a community pool. So over 30, 40 years of collecting cans and bottles, she raised enough money to build a community pool. And this ride, uh, hence why it's gravel ride for Maisie's Pride, uh, helps to a uh, portion of the proceeds goes back to funding the continual use of the pool in the small town. And uh, not only that, it, the course literally goes past my dad's house. So last year, my boy and my dad ran an aid station at mile 70. This year, it's mile 102. And Ugh. it'll be the muddiest, nastiest road on the whole entire course. Like my dad lives where the road ends, and then but the course continues on there. So it's it, like it used to be a road back in like the 20s, maybe, maybe. Um, <laughs> the bridge is out. Last year, there was a dead coyote right in the middle of the road. I mean, it's just like it's the middle of nowhere. It's a hay road. And, uh, and we called the other one the rabbit road because we'd shoot rabbits on it when we were, you know, when I was a kid. And, uh, and it's a muddy mess. So I'm kind of dreading seeing my dad at mile 102 because that's where like it's going to get bad, <laughs> but it'll be, it'll be fun to be, you know, on course supporting an event that is literally in my backyard of where I grew up. Yeah. So it's going to be, it's going to be a good time. And then just three weeks later is dirty Kansas 200. So these two big beasts coming up are going to hurt, but they should be a lot of fun. What's the total distance on Maisie's? One, 119.5 is what the, he just posted the GPS. So yeah, it's it's a haul. I was set for 115 when when I heard he did 120. I, it kind of bothered me a little bit because I, you know, I was set for 115. It's just weird in your mind how 120 is too far, but 115 was doable. So yeah, I don't know. I'm dreading it. But this year, 67 degrees. Currently, winds are forecasted at five miles per hour. Last year, it was 95 degrees, and winds were blowing from 20 to 40 miles per hour. So <laughs> it was pretty much the wind was in your face magically the whole entire time, and it was terrible, and it was extremely hot and dry as a bone. This year, it's the exact opposite. But 67, that should be pretty good. But it's also supposed to rain, and it's already in flood stage. So this whole course should be a very wild experience. So... Yeah, somewhere between a 10 and 14 mile an hour average is what I'm figuring. <laughs> it's just, it could be a wild card. So hopefully they've got enough rain that it's washed all the mud off the roads and it's down to hard stuff. But gosh, you know, heavy rains brings on all the nails out of all, all, all these gravel roads. It brings all the nails and glass out of the sides, moves them all over the roads. So the risk of flats are a lot higher in races uh, like this. So yeah, I'm, I, uh, yeah, I'm struggling. You're running tubeless? <laughs> I am, yeah. Yeah, but I'm running 35s because I, I, um, 
had them on there for land run where I expected mud and we didn't get it. And I had forties bought for, but it, it's a tire that's designed for dry. It's not good mm. and wet. So, uh, the Torino dries is what they are. And I'm not going to put them on given that it probably will be a muddy mess. So uh, I hope the 35s don't beat me up too much, but we'll see. It's going to be an interesting weekend. I'll tell you that. I and just then, hope to cross the finish. <laughs> well, good luck with that. Man. Yeah. And then you're speaking at your school, right? Going yeah. Back there? Yeah. That's going to be fun too. Yeah. Speaking not at- a garbage man. No. Yeah. Not a garbage <laughs> man. Yeah. I was telling Matt before the call, like when I took a, a, a DOS based test back in 1993 or two or whatever it was, it suggested I become a garbage man, apparently because I like being outside a lot and I love animals and the outdoors. And, and, uh, so I, I reached out to the school. I'm like, Hey, you know what? I'm back there. If you'd like me to come in and give you my pitch on how education ties into the real world, uh, I'm glad to help. And so he put me in four different schools now for speech when I'm back. So it'll be kind of fun to do that and, and share my take. Cause it, it is funny. You know, I hear, you know, I tell people a lot, people ask me what I do. I'm like, Oh, I, I'm a seamstress because I do so a lot. And I make all our backpacks from, you know, for, for the prototypes and, and you have to use geometry and algebra a lot in figuring out patterns. Um, you use, you know, science and anatomy, physiology, uh, to figure out, you know, body movement and how it's going to apply to a pack and, and, uh, and mechanical skills from ag and woodshop classes. They were huge to apply to how I build things today. And then I actually took home ec and two years of sewing just because I wanted to be an architect back then. And, uh, those drawing classes obviously pay off for my pattern making for prototypes, but, uh, but the, because of my tiny school, you, the only way I could take my drafting classes each year was by taking sewing classes on year two and you know, sophomore and junior year of high school. Um, it was the only way I could get that extra humanity. And I made my first backpack in sewing class in my sophomore year in high school. <laughs> so it, it's, it's funny to come full circle and, and not that I remembered hardly any of them sewing skills. It's like golf. You know, you stop playing golf for a year, you come back and you're back to almost ground zero. But, but it gave me the confidence that I can figure out how to use a sewing machine when I started this business. And, and it took me, you know, a year or two, but, but I'm pretty good now. I mean, I can, I can make anything you want. Uh, so it's, it's, it's neat to see these skills that you learn when you're young that you don't understand the why, and then you actually apply them in so many different facets, um, that I figured it'd be fun to share that with the schools when I'm there. So yeah, I'm excited about it. It's going to be fun. Be back on my home turf. Well, to show them that you're an explorer, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and there's something outside of Kansas. We were talking about that before. It's yeah. Like nothing against Kansas or wherever you grow up. But yeah. if people say that this is all you can do, well, then as a kid, you're like, well, that's an adult telling me this. And yeah. Having somebody come in that has lived in California and Colorado and Texas and built this business. Yeah. You know, if you reach one kid, awesome. That's yeah, a win. Yeah. I think too many people in high school and, and you know, whether you're in, Los Angeles or you're in country in Kansas or wherever, I think a lot of people struggle to have the vision of what am I going to do? You know, everybody's like, well, I'm going to be a fireman. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a lawyer or whatever. You get these things just because society pushes it. Like that's just what you do because that's the, that's a good thing. Right. But no one ever says I'm going to be a sanitation engineer or, you know, I'm going to be, um, I don't know, I'm going to design sewing machines or I'm going to design light switches. You know, there's all these different little fringe things. Um, you know, I got my start arguably in the traffic industry and, um, that's what took me to Arizona years ago is my, my, uh, uncle offered me a job to come out and be the field operations guy for all managing all the traffic systems that he sold. And I helped install and tech support and all this stuff. 
that was a great business, honestly. It was it was an area that was such on the fringe. It wasn't. I've always called it. I've always been in the non-sexy side of business. You know, I went from the traffic side to the manufacturing side in medical devices. So I wasn't the guy in the hospitals that had to deal with all the doctors and everything. It, you know, you get to wear scrubs or maybe you wear business suits a whole bunch more. You know, I, I dealt with mechanical engineers and we helped to make, make their widgets. And honestly, I probably had a lot more fun on my side. You know, it was it was a cool area to be, but I've always been more on the fringe. And, and I think that's where that part is never really discussed in school. It's always doctor, lawyer, whatever, go to be an engineer, go to be an architect, go do something. You know, it's, uh, it, it's just such a gap and I don't know how to fix that. It's just a, I don't know, get a bunch of different business people to come in and random people to come in and talk to schools, I guess. But I figure if I can, like you said, do, do my part and, and influence, you know, one kid, uh, or hopefully more then um, then I hopefully will accomplish something good for the day. <laughs> awesome. <clears throat> well, Josh, it's been great, man. Good luck this weekend and going to miss running into you at Hidden Mesa and best yeah. of luck in Texas. And, and sincerely, thank you for everything you've done and taking sure thing, interest man. and helping out, man. It's made a huge difference in, in my business too. So, Well, likewise. Appreciate your insight too. Thanks, man. Josh Sprague, Orange Mud. Have fun getting muddy this weekend, buddy. Ah, uh, dread. <laughs> <laughs> if you like this show, I have a very simple and quick favor to ask. Would you please share it with one person who you think might enjoy it? And maybe they've never even heard of podcasting or never listened to one, but maybe help get them set up with how to actually download and listen to content. If you get outside and that's on a bike or skis or snowboard, snowshoeing, or you simply don't like being cold, take a look at the warm front chest warmer. This is a company I started years ago, and with the help of a great number of people, got this company and this product off the ground. It is a thermal chest warmer, which is a fancy name for a bib. It is handmade here in Colorado by my business partner, Linda, of PolarTech Fleece. There's two different weights, but the concept is to insulate your core while you're outside. And so, like mom always said, put on a hat to keep you warm. Keeping your core warm while you're moving through the cool or cold air, or you're simply just tired of being cold. One of my customers, Sue, doesn't cycle, doesn't run. Uh, She's actually a breast cancer survivor, and she got tired of her reconstructive implants being cold. So take a look. Uh, I guarantee it personally, it is handmade in Colorado here, like I said, and uh, it's been a fun venture. It's still growing. It's still going, but take a look at the warmfront.com. That is T-H-E-W-A-R-M-F-R-O-N-T.